At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's time for our journey to begin. You walk through our forests, yet you remain a mystery. What are you? Why do you hide? This ain't got nothing to do with Bigfoot. That's, Bigfoot's only one eye, one person. <laughs> oh. Or, or a fictitious person. They have they have never taken pictures or found him. That's just a, a story like uh, Star Wars. In the land we call wilderness, there lives a creature that has become one with legend. At the moment, it's about to have an unpleasant encounter with the self-styled masters of the wilderness, man. Welcome to OK Talk. My name is Clinton, the Red Dragon, the BHC, Draco Rojo. I've been told that I don't intro myself enough. We could probably do a better job of that. I'm Matt. Matthew. The Stoke. Stoke Mike. Stoking it up. Yeah, yeah. Tonight on the program, we are going to play our episode, our interview with Kathy Strain from the, among other things, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, the NAWAC. We've actually had this had this <laughs> interview for quite a while. And in fact, I think it is so dated that I said, Kathy, if you guys kill Bigfoot by the end of June... <laughs> So far, that has not happened. Right. It has not happened. Not to our knowledge, at least. Not to our knowledge. That was a very cool interview. It's, I, it's, I really enjoyed doing that. It's really awesome. She's a really awesome lady, and I think you people should enjoy it. We decided that we we're going to talk a little bit about my first Bigfoot experience that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I mentioned to Seth Breedlove from the Sasquatch podcast in the last episode, and you just heard the intro. It's time for our journey to begin. So I was uh, I was in high school. I must have been like a freshman, and I was playing basketball with this guy. His name was Ken. Little b-ball outside the school? Oh, it was inside the school, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, varsity athlete, sir. Uh-huh. Ken, great guy. Anyway, his dad owned a like a, a movie rental place. Oh man, one of the, and it was an independent one, so pre blockbuster, yeah, video stores. Man, that's that's a podcast episode right there. Pre- it really, uh, that was my uh, my first job was at a movie rental store for real. Yeah, I used to ride our bike to one called JJ's Video there in Tyler. And it had the bead curtain with the triple X stuff oh, so in the back. Was, that was a serious one. Oh yeah, yeah. We oh. didn't have we didn't have any of those in, in Springtown. We had one independent store that was there for a long time, ever for as long as I could remember. 
and then a uh, and then movie gallery moved in, which was a movie gallery Hollywood Video. They were all part of the same. Oh, okay. Uh, company, and they moved in across the street, and that's where I worked was at movie gallery. Oh, well, yeah, the greatness of the VHS store. I, I was just talking about that today because really? we passed by an old uh, shutdown blockbuster, and I was like, uh, that is a that is an era in time that is. I for me sorely missed, if not just for the experience of going into the to the video rental store, talking to the people there. There's a whole culture around it. You know, yeah, I, again, that's a that's a whole other podcast. But uh, very very young, rode our bike. Uh, I know that we rented Jaws, and then I also remember we rented Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And when we got home, and I put it in, and it said Episode Four, I was like, I got the wrong one. <laughs> I was convinced it was the wrong one, but yeah. then it started, and I was like, "I think this is how it starts." <laughs> uh, Man, nothing. what what a great uh, to be to be plugged into somebody that owns one. That's awesome. Yeah, and his dad his dad owned one, and we were all at his place one day evening, whatever. And he had this closet that was basically full of movies that didn't make the final cut, you know. And I guess in those days, people would. You know, much like we get stuff pitched to us as producers, books, right? Pitch emails, all that stuff. I'm, I'm assuming that the VHS companies probably did the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. If you, yeah, if you were not uh, ordering them specifically, you would certainly get things in there that uh, were in, in in hopes of you adding them to your roster. So I'm typing this in here right now because I want to make sure that I get the details on this actual program. Correct. I swear it has it listed. Yeah. See, and this is part of the beauty of the internet. The Wikipedia page for this is different than the name that's on the (laughs) VHS box. But anyway, in this stack of VHS tapes that included, you know, the NFL blooper videos and, you know, one-off basketball, any kind of random television show that they put on VHS Near the top of the stack was a VHS called Secrets of the Unknown. I want to say that each VHS had four episodes on it. And Secrets of the Unknown had the one that we have, had Bigfoot, maybe a UFO, maybe a Loch Ness Monster. Very, very uh, upper level type, uh, type topics. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, not not deep diving into any of them, but uh, this so, is everything you need to know about Bigfoot. A lot of people that are into the topic, their first introduction to it is Leonard Nimoy in the In Search of, in search of. Mm-hmm. Secrets and Mysteries or Secrets of the Unknown was a television series which originally aired in syndication from 1988 to 1989. <laughs> Very it was long run. It would it was hosted by Irish actor Edward Mulhair. And dealt with the topics of paranormal nature as well as uh, mysterious historical events. Those shows were a dime a dozen. Yeah. There's so many of them. And I mean, it mentions here, it was uh, similar to the 1970s, 1980s series In Search Of. Amazing. I think that I asked, okay, yeah, it was volume one. Here it is. This is perfect. Secrets of the Unknown volume one on VHS tape included space stonehenge lake monsters and bigfoot that's a very good primer for for the unknown and so i guess i asked oh gosh i hope i asked ken's dad that i could have it i got it 
<laughs> and I don't think we watched it that night over there, but I had two really good friends and we were good kids. Oh, we were good kids, remember? And we didn't get into a lot of trouble. So we bring this VHS over and we did a lot of the sleepovers, even though, you know, we were in high school. But mm-hmm. before you have a car, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. In fact, one of the friends was actually old enough to eventually he was the first one of us that had a car and we got in all kinds of trouble that will be detailed further on down the line. But uh, we popped this thing in and it starts. And now you just recently saw it. Right. It is out there on YouTube for you to watch. It is. Thankfully. Hopefully it stays there. Who's going to complain about it? (laughs) Who's going to submit a... a dmca on that right it starts with this castle in the distance really silly graphics leading up to a castle that shows like after a lightning strike a window at the top of the castle that you could see a silhouette in and then all of a sudden you're inside that castle looking at that window and very much on point with his heel turn edward molehair turns to you and says It's time for our journey to begin. And at that point, we were on the floor. I mean, (laughs) we were silly. And it was the most unbelievable thing we had ever seen. We're going to roll a little bit of this audio because you have to understand. As soon as soon as it got to the encounter stories, so many things fired off in my head, but we'll just roll some of this and the crazy the crazy thing is is some of these people are famous bigfoot people Mm -hmm. so we'll just start here well i'd loaded two loads of logs out that morning and uh, i looked out towards the timber and i saw this movement and i stood and watched and uh from around behind a big tree there was a black deal looking at me and it had a peaked pointed head Okay, the second person that they show in this show is a man by the name of Dadis. And I swear it said Dadis O. Perry. That may be the way that we, but his name is Dadis Perry. I think it said O. Perry. I think it did too. Let me just tell you, dear listener, this guy, no joke, looks like he's 90 has a white beard and white long hair cascading out from underneath what I can only describe as some sort of elfin cap that has a feather sticking out of it. (laughs) He has a white button-down shirt underneath green overalls, which match the hat. Play that again. Play that again. Just imagine that picture when you hear this guy. Yeah, you know what? Let's 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 play this. The, okay. I've got Dadis just down. Let's play everything that Dadis says within the first five minutes of this show. This is your introduction to the episode. Yeah, this is how I learned about Bigfoot. And I stood and watched, and uh, from around behind a big tree, there was a black deal looking at me, and it had a peaked, pointed head. He was standing upright, and... Sorry, I left firm in here. I swung my arm in a big arc and I said, uh, I yelled out, Hi, Sasquatch, come on down. 
Bigfoot is gigantopithecus and is still here. <laughs> what a character, man. I don't even know where, where to begin with this show because the entire introduction is its own you know, crazy set. And I think in total, it's like 18 minutes of actual video. Mm-hmm. A minute and a half of it, that intro... He comes in and sits on that desk and like the the books move and it's like, you know, you, you heard all the the technology sounds that are going on. And we find that the bookcase is, in fact, a gigantic television monitor, <laughs> which I mean, I guess there's a good chance that Edward Mulhair actually has that set up now. A very uh, shot in his house. I don't know how else to say it, but. Not to be mean, the look of Dadis Perry is enough to get me, 15-year-old me, laughing uncontrollably like a schoolgirl. It gets 33-year-old me laughing. Right. Yeah. Now, add to the fact that the way that he talks, the things that he says, <laughs> I I see a black deal. <laughs> like, we thought that was the funniest thing of all time. <laughs> then he says it has a peaked, peaked pointed head that had us laughing but then he says hi sasquatch come on down (laughs) hi sasquatch come on down well we were on the floor we were on the floor laughing at this and so the crazy thing is one thing uh two maybe not even two years ago i figured out that this was a real person like obviously he's a real person but like he was a real person in the Bigfoot community. Right, yeah. He was actually he was actually investigating Bigfoot sightings. In fact, at some point later on, we're going to have a, a very well-renowned expert who knew this man join us. He apparently claimed to have more sightings than anyone else in the Bigfoot community. Like, and I'm talking about, you know, 17, 18, 19 times. And he was just as crazy as he looked, according to everything that I'd read. Yeah. Now, it's followed by, there's a couple of different people. One of them is John Green, who many people consider to be a father of Bigfoot research because his book series is the way that a lot of people, a little bit older than us, were introduced to the topic. Uh, He wrote Apes Among Us and Mm -hmm. Year of the Sasquatch. Classic, classic researcher. Uh, between John Green and Renee Renee DeHinden, I mean, they're the uh, considered the pillars of the foundation. The other guy that's on there is Grover Krantz. Grover Krantz is, of course, the famous professor from Washington State who, till his dying day, believed in Bigfoot and yeah. you know taught classes, at least one class in his anthropology class. Well, the funny thing is, is it says witness encounter. John Green admittedly never saw Bigfoot. Neither did Grover Krantz. I don't know if they, they didn't show Grover Krantz as he was a witness. They show John Green and they make him look like he's just the crazy, crazy man. This dude was a newspaper reporter, a really big time author. How they yeah. threw him in this mix. So listen to this. Listen to the way they handled, are we going to shoot Sasquatch controversy, the kill or no kill. The state of undeclared war exists in some parts of the Pacific Northwest. Mulher. Organized posses patrolled the backwoods looking for a Bigfoot to blast down. <laughs> this vigilante mentality has led to a law on the books in Skamania County in the state of Washington. Anyone convicted of killing a Sasquatch will be fined $10,000 
and put in jail. <laughs> the only way that we can establish That's the existence of the Sasquatch positively is to produce a body, uh, all or a significant part of one. This isn't just my idea. I've been told this by all of the skeptics, including the top authorities at the Smithsonian. And until uh, physical evidence is produced, um, scientists are not about to say that it's real. They're not about to accept it, try and classify it. This leaves us then with uh, the only obvious alternative is for somebody to shoot one and uh, bring in the body. Science at least has a motive, but no motive can justify this. Now they shoot John Green. Uh, if I was able to, uh, I would shoot one because I think it's very important to establish that these exist. If it's there, we should know what it is, but if it's there, I think we'll eventually destroy it. Oh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous because uh, they just will shoot me to prove there's uh, humanoids around here. Until someone literally brings one in, there, there is no absolute proof that these animals exist. Oh, I certainly think that it would be worth every once in a while it uh, could be tranquilized listen to I, I see no necessity in, uh, in killing it it's natural to be afraid of things you don't know about and the more you learn about bigfoot the more you realize that he's just kind of curious he wants something to eat of course i think there ought to be some way they'd have a right to capture him as to shoot him and cripple him or something <laughs> to get him or whatever it takes to capture him because i'm i'm positive he's out there Shoot him or cripple him or something. I'm not kidding, Matt. We were laying on the floor of my buddy's house. I can only imagine. Cry laughing. I so, can only imagine watching this for the first time as a as a teenager surrounded by my friends. I would be dying. Yeah. This would be the funniest thing ever. Can I just like can I just say the music in this show is absolutely incredible? Yeah. All you need a little wood, little woodwind. Yeah. A little doom, ching, doom, ching. <laughs> combined with the sounds of the you know, he's looking in a periscope. Right. And it's but this age frame, like 13 to 15, is kind of when I got my start in radio because I would prank call radio shows. Of course. Um, in fact, I can't wait to meet Charlie Jones, the legendary Charlie Jones of Texas Overnight. But man, I've been on his show a lot and he has no idea. <laughs> and we would go, one of us would go with the phone you know, into one room and then we would have like a, a stereo that had a cassette player that had a record button and we'd roll tape on it. And we would really just try to get, you know, try to be more insane than the next person. Yeah. Talking about topics that we had no idea. Like one specifically, I remember calling about NAFTA for some reason. But so children, you may not understand, but in the day, prank calling was the best way to troll people rather than go on the Internet. You could troll people on their phone. Yeah. And and the invention of caller ID virtually killed this. Yes. I got the great idea that, hey, there's a name and a location at the bottom corner of this VHS tape. I'm sad to report that the young Clinton did, in fact, pick up my buddy's phone, call information. And I think we started with the first guy and hit. I got a number for him. Not Dadis. I couldn't find Dadis. He's off the grid. I want to say it's definitely two of them, if not three. But it wasn't John Green and it wasn't, you know, Furman or Dadis. I mean, I got on the phone and I said, hey, hey I'm so-and-so, such-and-such, and, uh, you know, uh, just uh, 
we've putting together a big expedition. We're from the <laughs> University of Texas in Austin. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd be. I'm just wondering if you'd be interested to be involved in the... <laughs> and they were so excited. <sighs> Did you get them to say anything about their their exploits? You know, what's funny is I can't... Or did you just want to get them on the phone? Yeah, it was. I, I couldn't believe that I had gotten this VHS that was, you know, at this point, at least four or five years old. Mm-hmm. And that I could actually contact these lunatics that were on the beginning of this Bigfoot show. I don't know if I got them going and then I would just put my hand over the receiver and be like, he's actually talking to me on the phone. Can you believe it? They would go pick up, you know, the phone in the other room. Yeah. Remember that bit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he being Edward Mulhair, immediately, the way that he delivered things, that like this line. This is the mark of Sasquatch, taken from a set of tracks that covered a five-mile stretch of dense forest. The depth of each print indicates that whatever made it weighed 800 pounds. Eyebrow up. 800 pounds. <laughs> perfect for this. It's so perfect. And the funny thing is, I took this with me all the way through college until the tape broke. Yeah. Rewound it so many times that we eventually just played it out. And of course, here I am years later, amazed that these are actual figures in the... Because the, the way that they introduce the people that are on this show it's not like anybody's like hey this guy right here he's kind of a badass written a bunch of books about the subject you know they're all just presented as just listen to this lunatic and the way that he describes how he's going to kill the sasquatch (laughs) sasquatch he's just looking for his home we should not try to drive him further into the wilderness (laughs) let's give a little bit more data so anyway we used to do a radio show where we had an intro to a segment and probably after it ran for like eight months and we had gotten 800 different calls asking us what the heck that was. We actually told people on the air. So I figured we better start early with this podcast because I don't know a better way to start a podcast than it's time for our journey to begin. It's perfect. It, it is. works so well. It is. Let's just listen to a little bit more of Dadis O'Perry. And I stood and watched and uh, <laughs> from around behind a big tree there was... A black deal looking at me, and it had a peaked, pointed head. Oh, my. He was standing upright, and the storm black was hanging down the side of him, and he looked like a man and a beast. I swung my arm in a big arc, and I said, uh, I yelled out, Hi, Sasquatch, come on down. Bigfoot is gigantopithecus and is still here. Oh, they might as well kill me to prove that there's humanoids around here. (laughs) And just to hear that he really was that insane. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. It's quite a character. Like, I think the second link down is Dadiso Perry dash kook science. (laughs) Can only imagine. Only imagine. So is it O'Perry? See, this has it listed as... Dadis. I think one day I actually took a screenshot of it because I was thinking that it would be a pretty awesome profile picture to throw up. Right. I'll have to do some. We should we should investigate further. 
And we can go sit at our desk and pull a lever and the bookcase would reveal. Look so, into a screen and a picture of Dennis O'Perry. Jeez. So, yeah, I was uh, trolling Bigfooters long ago. And that was your introduction? Yeah, as best as I could tell, you know. I mean, that's when it got, that's the best introduction. Yeah. I would always go to the library and check out the, I, I must have checked it out 20 times, is like the Time Life books of mm-hmm. of the, you know, the unknown. Mm-hmm. Bigfoot was always a big, big part of those. I'm totally sure that I was into weird stuff at an early age, mm-hmm. so I just, this made the most impact, you right. know. And it's humor. The unfortunate thing is, it's not trying to be funny, but. It's the funniest show that I've ever seen. And that, I mean, that stands today. Like, if I was a network person, acquire the rights, run this, yeah, run it 24-7, run it late at night when people are high, or during the day when people are high in <laughs> Skamania County. But this also fed into the whole Bigfoot only exists in the Pacific Northwest because... Yeah, Peter Byrne at some point in this is like, oh, I am confident that there are at least a few of them in the Pacific Northwest. And it never crosses into the, oh, there could be anything outside of the state. So that probably laid that foundation that when I initially started hearing that people thought that Sasquatch was in Texas, I was like, oh, well, certainly Oklahoma. So I guess we should probably introduce Kathy... I just want to tell you about Dadis Perry, and I'm going to call him Dadis Perry from now. Okay. Okay. So anyway, reports have just flooded in about Dadis Perry. Actually, not. I just clicked on this Bigfoot Encounters link, right? Profile of Dadis Perry by Kyle Mizukami in 1999. Carson Washington native Dadis Perry, who passed away in 1998, had claimed 12 sightings of Bigfoot more than any living person. A former timber logger, engineer, and rancher, Dadis Perry had spent most of his life outdoors in Bigfoot country and enjoyed a close proximity to nature. It is probably due to this closeness to nature and his peaceful disposition that Perry had a unique opportunity to gather information about the life of the Sasquatch. In addition to his many sightings, The 84-year-old Perry pieced together his own theories about the biology of Sasquatches, including physiology, eating habits, and general behavior. Gigantopithecus, still here. Some people don't believe Dad is Perry for various reasons. (laughs) Perry would sometimes mix up his stories. He had a tendency to be a little long-winded, and for someone of his age, it would undermine his credibility. Of course, quote, nobody sees Bigfoot 12 times in a lifetime, unquote. Although I never met the man, I know people who have met him. I've watched him in a video of a lecture he gave at the Western Bigfoot Society in 1991. Dude, we gotta get that. (laughs) And I've read about him in newspapers and books. Robert Bob Pyle, author of Where Bigfoot Walks, Crossing the Dark Divide, described Dennis Perry like this, a white-bearded old-timer with wild eyes and a jack-o'-lantern grin. (laughs) This is a quote from Pyle. One person who had no lack of vision is Dennis Perry, the resident Bigfoot guru of Carson, Washington. A skinny Santa in olive drab and flannel, I told you, 
Perry hangs out in the canyons above the Columbia River where he spots Sasquatch almost at will. In 1937, he claims he saw one in full view at 200 feet on the Observation Peak Trail. In 1963, a Bigfoot followed him down from the saddle south of Gifford Peak and he saw it well from 20 feet away. Since then, he has seen them from Panther Creek to Quinnesset River in British Columbia in every aspect from sunning to soliciting his favors. What? What does that mean? I don't like the sound of that. Here, right, we're going to have Edward Mulhair read the rest of this. Anywhere else, Dadis Perry might be considered million eccentric. Or worse. Situated at the confluence of the Wind River and the Columbia, Carson lies in the very heart of Bigfoot country. The town team is the Carson Bigfoots. The Carson Bigfoots. You like that eyebrow? <laughs> Dadis Perry's Bigfoot Sightings, written by Dadis Perry. 1937, 1963, 1974, 1976, 1976 and 1977, 1977, 1978, 1979, 1981, 1982, and finally in 1985, a face-to-face -face viewing with a female Sasquatch in Perry's own words, she followed me over a half mile to my shelter and stayed behind a tree while I repaired the, the shelter. <laughs> then she came close to the shelter and seemed to be telling me she was available as a mate. <laughs> she was back a couple more times and left tracks and droppings. Wow. Hi, Sasquatch. Come on down. That guy had some stories to tell. Soliciting. He meant soliciting when he said that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We are going to have to discuss. How do you not follow through with that? Dad is better. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> We're going to have to follow up on Dad is Perry with, yeah. uh, with, with Will Jevening who had met the man. Oh my goodness. So without further ado, hi, hi Kathy, Kathy, come on down. down. Tonight we're going to be speaking with an actual celebrity, a celebrity in the Bigfoot community. My oh my, what a fascinating penelope of people you can find in the land of Bigfoot. Characters galore, some playing roles, some just playing themselves. A lot of people with their nose to the grindstone, a lot of people with their head in the clouds. But tonight we're going to speak to someone who is credible. Joining us tonight on the show is Kathy Strain. Kathy Strain is the Heritage Resource and Tribal Relations Programs Manager for the Stanislaus National Forest in Sonora, California. She's responsible for all the archaeological, historical, and tribal resources of her forest. Kathy has an MA in Anthropology and is considered an authority on Native cultures and their traditional Bigfoot beliefs. Her book, Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot and Native Culture, details those stories. Kathy's on the board of directors for the Alliance of Independent Bigfoot Researchers and is a member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. We reached Kathy at her home nearly two months ago. So what I wanted to do, instead of uh, the typical... Hey, Kathy, you were growing up and you got into Bigfoot. I wanted to kind of work backwards, if that's okay with you. Oh, sure. 
And I was wondering if you would enlighten us a little bit, the latest, as much as you can. I understand that you can't talk too much about Area X, but can you maybe let us know where you guys left off last and what you're expecting this summer? Well, we kind of left it with, we had a lot of activity last year, and what we try to do is give them a break in the sense of, um, in the wintertime, we typically focus on just doing, like, repairs to uh, the cabin that we stay in, or road repairs, you know, getting some of the vegetation that overwhelms the road cut down, that type of thing, as opposed to actually hunting a wood ape. And it kind of gives them a break. In the winter, they clearly go someplace else as opposed to being around the cabin as much. The foliation changes uh, greatly. And so um, we've been in recently, and the foliage has come back very well. But if you'll, you'll probably even you have been pretty hammered. <laughs> with rainfall and tornadoes and everything else that's going on. And so um, the area doesn't seem to to attract tornadoes, which I'm very thankful for because I probably would never go back if it did. But it's been pretty hammered with water, so everything's nice and green and lots of food resources are growing back and everything. So operations for us will be starting soon. If the rain continues the way that it's going right now, we're going to be looking at an aquatic ape because... <laughs> We are in a we are in a deluge here in North Texas. Wow! Now, uh, when you, when you say that you saw an increase in activity, what's what sorts of things are you seeing, and are you seeing more of a certain thing than other? Are you seeing more sightings? Are you having lots of rocks being thrown, things of that nature? What what sort of things are going on? Um, yeah, uh, the 2014 operation had quite a bit of rock throws, quite a few sightings. It was it was pretty intense. Um, every year seems to bring more, more and more sightings and more and more opportunities to gather one. And so, why that is, it's kind of hard to to know that information. You know, what, you know what is what is the attraction? It seems to be very much related to who's present at the time, who's there, what those people are doing, what may cause their interest. And this particular year, we just seem to have had some very good mixes of people and activities that was luring to them. Now, was it 2013 or 2014 that you had the siding with Brian Brown and I believe Mark? Clark, and that would have been, I think, 2012. Okay. Has it really been? It's been, it's been. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. So, um, because it was, in 2012, we spent a week there. 2013, I went without my husband, and I spent three weeks there by, without my husband, but there was other people there, and that's when I saw the baby um, that slipped. 2014 was last year where um, I did see something very briefly, but, you know, not enough to really say much about it, and, and then we're going back in 2015. Okay, so I remember where they saw the four small chimp-like, essentially adolescents running up the creek bed. Uh-huh. You also saw what you would consider a baby? Oh, yes. In 2013, I was in there again. Brian Brown seems to be my lucky coin on seeing things. When he's present, I, I tend to have more luck. But I was sitting on the back porch. All of us were kind of just hanging around in the shade because it's, you know, pretty hot, of course, in Oklahoma in June. 
And I looked up and I could see this tree shaking. And I was like, why is this tree shaking? You know, and we do have squirrels and I'm used to the squirrels around the, the cabin and even here at my own house in California. And I saw very clearly about, I would roughly guess somewhere around 30 pounds black. If I had been in a zoo, I would have told you it was a chimpanzee grabbing the, a limb, going out onto the end of it. It was pitch black animal with a very straight back. It used its weight to balance the end of the tree, and then it leapt across this clearing that we, we call the bottleneck and into another tree, and then just zoomed, went right through the forest. We ran right up to it uh, to see if we could, you know, see where it went. And you could see that, obviously, this animal had been doing this quite a bit because the same tree it had jumped in, the upper branches had been broken. So as he put on weight, you know, he was moving down a branch, you know, to be able to do, to do that activity. And then um, the next day, Brian Brown felt like he got a, a small glimpse of that, but of another, of it doing it again. But um, but I didn't see it the second time. So, Are you trying to capture any of this stuff on on film or is it more you just happen to be outside and like you say, catch a, catch a glimpse, glimpse of it and it's gone quicker than you can even think about trying to record it? You know, we do, I always have cameras on me. We do use the surveillance cameras that are triggered by motion. They just, you have to have them aimed in the right place at the right time. And it's so quick that you really aren't able to get it. Um, you know, by the time you turn your camera on, the thing's passed. Like when I had the setting in 2012, we had a camera pointed very much in the general location of where the animals were coming towards us. But it was me who actually triggered the camera to come on, and all you see is my behind, you know, and us <laughs> kind of rushing towards the area. So, I mean, those those cameras, unless it, they're on 24-7 or like plot watchers that are taking constant photos 24-7, that, that you have to just... I mean, they they can't turn on fast enough to be used as a motion camera, and they have to be in the right area. And we only have so many funds, and we had, I don't even know how many cameras at the time, but we, we still use them, and we do have GoPros that we do use um, when we're out as well. So, and, and you also mentioned that they seem to react differently to different groups of people. So are you getting the sense that they they know who you are or they – are they are you getting to know uh, the different people in the group, or do, do they have? Do they seem to exhibit some sort of understanding about uh, what what you're there to do? Oh, I don't. I don't think they have any clue that we're there to uh, shoot at them right? or to take a specimen in order to prove that they're real. I don't think they'd come around if they knew that was our end goal. I think there are definitely personalities in the group that they seem much more attracted to than others. We, we did a correlation of when do the most rock throws happen? When did this, this happen? When does this happen? And we did it by teams and who's present on the teams. And there's definitely um, a pattern that you can see there of certain personalities that they seem attracted to. They, they like women very much. Um, they hate Daryl Collier with all their heart and soul. And they're they're going to get him one of these days, and we're going to hear him screaming, and we're just going to go, oh, are they finally, you know, they didn't even. But they seem to be very interested in certain personalities, and it doesn't seem to matter if you're really super aggressive or if you're very passive and just kind of act nonchalant. That doesn't seem to be a factor, and it, it tends to be who the person is more than anything. Do you interpret that rock throwing as uh, aggression, or are they trying to maybe communicate or 
what do you attribute that to? Well, I think it's dependent on what's going on at the time. Rock throws tend to happen late at night when you when they can't don't have a very good view of you early in the morning, that type of thing, where they're trying to make you react. In a, in a way, like, we'll be sitting at one cabin and we'll hear a rock throw somewhere else. And the usual thing that we do is we get up and we go over to where the other, where the rock throw is. And I think it's so they can see us move, maybe get a count of us, see what we're doing. A lot of times, if you're sitting on the front porch, rocks will come from behind to try to get you to come out um, off the porch where you don't have a very good view of us individually, but have us come out and look up the hill and maybe that's, you know, what they're interested in, the keeping track of us and, and having us do things. But I have had experiences where we had just a tremendous amount of activity going on one night and it was very late and something was moving on around on the hillside of, uh, behind us. And so we had went back to, to see what we could see with our flashlights and our night vision and we have thermals as well. And I could clearly hear a rock being coming through the trees, you know, that it was, I could hear it, you know, hit a leaf, hit a leaf, hit a leaf. And I said, oh, that sounds like it's getting really close. And I moved and then it hit the back of the cabin. And if I hadn't moved, it would have hit me. And so I was never really sure, was that an accident? You know, on occasion, even I can, you know, get a basketball in a hoop, you know, on accident. <laughs> so I never was really sure, is that, was it intended to hit me or was it just a lucky throw? And so I don't know about that. But they could have easily have pegged this, I think, with a rock and really done some damage. And so far that hasn't happened. doesn't mean it's not going to happen or that's what the intent is. They're just, you know, they're either really good at throwing or they're really bad at throwing. Who knows? It's amazing. Every time that I've talked to anyone and tried to explain to them why what you guys are doing is different than what, anyone else has done and i said mainly it's the time it's the time put in the field and you went for at least three or four years before anyone had a sighting there at all or there was maybe one and then it seems like all of a sudden like maybe they got used to you being there and started to reveal themselves more i actually yeah because the nawac have been going to this location for some time, but they were just going in for very, very small jumps, you know, just in, service the cameras, come back out. And it was, you know, it wasn't until they started spending more time there that all this activity, I mean, they did have some sightings beforehand, that's why they went there in the first place, but it was when they started spending a lot of time there where we had a lot of activity. I mean, I just have to think that a typical big footer, quote unquote, or researcher or someone who wants to go out for a weekend and thinks that they've got a hot spot. And I mean, it's just a needle in a haystack. If you get any activity, if you were a reclusive animal and you didn't want to be found and you knew someone was in your area, you would just wait them out and wait for them to leave. And with this situation, I love the fact that you guys are spending four or five months at a time on the ground, almost having someone there consistently Mm -hmm. has the plan going forward. Is that about the window? Since you were saying that about the fall and in the winter with them, maybe not being there or moving, is that kind of the window? Are you looking at four months pretty much being the maximum five months right around in that time? Or is there a chance where you would think that you might be able to have people there more than half a year? We're 
have all volunteers, so everybody that goes in there are doing it on their own dime and doing it on their own time. And so, you know, my vacation time is spent there. And thankfully, I've got very understanding children that haven't, you know, they're teenagers and older now, so they, they're not hanging around with mom for the summer is fine with them. <laughs> but that's for all of us. All of us are using our vacation time from our jobs, our own money to do it. And so to do five months is, for me, amazing that we get enough people to even do that. And we do. We, do. we don't have any trouble of, of getting teams. And some people wait for other people to pick teams, and that's the, it, that's the team they pick to go on, that kind of thing. And so I think if we had the ability to be there, year round all the time I think we would be able we would do it it's just it's just a question of manpower in order to do it and I tease a lot of people a lot of time that my intent is to retire in Oklahoma and spend all my time in there just doing research and and I'm pretty serious about it because I think this this area is unique hopefully it will continue to produce the stuff that it's producing, hopefully it produces the body, and then wouldn't it be wonderful if the decision was made to fund 24-hour research in there, and then I could say, hey, guess what, I'm an anthropologist, can I get in on this deal? Um, And I would do it in a heartbeat. I think that's where it's headed, and I think that's one of the main reasons why it's so important, because it's obviously an area that's rich and diverse and there is certainly a national park preserve area there but i would imagine that the research and the the funding for research would go through the roof to be honest with you i can't really see why it hasn't already maybe it's just because not enough people have looked at the evidence like you said the monograph maybe people just aren't understanding that y'all really are doing the first it seems like to me at least the the first real research over an extended period of time and the documentation and uh, really feel like you guys are close, you know? Oh, I think we're very, very close. You know, if you look through Texas, you go through Oklahoma, there's a lot of woodcutting going on, a lot of, of trees being, I mean, not just there. I mean, it even happens in California where we have catastrophic wildfires. We have timber harvesting. We have just a lot of activity that's occurring on the landscape that reduces the, the habitat that these animals need to survive. And the longer we go, the, the more chance it is that it, they're going to tip to the side of just being extinct because there's no longer any food resources, places to go, water that's clean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's kind of getting more urgent every year. I mean, I, I would have guessed we would have had it last year, and I would have guessed we would have had it the year before, you know, just because we're all, not all of us, I mean, I'm not a hunter, clearly, but the people who go in there are hunters. They know animals. Several people, they feed their family with deer meat all, all um, year long. And so it's just being at the right place at the right time and being able to do it. And so I hope this is our year because I, we really need protection put in place so that um, it can be, you know, protected better than what it is right now. There isn't an animal similar to uh, a wood ape where with the same habitat needs or dietary needs that are is being protected and so there's no overlap with anything else. And so, you know, time time is of the essence. It, you've mentioned several times or we've we've mentioned that your ultimate purpose or the group's ultimate purpose is to bring out a specimen. 
and not simply just to document it. Uh, I understand the the need for that because you know footage can be faked and and things such as that. So to actually have a body to examine is necessary. But I'm curious to know how you how you would feel when that ultimately happens. I mean, would it be bittersweet because you know clearly there's not maybe a whole lot of these things and you know, maybe they have some sort of intelligence have you thought about how it will feel whenever you eventually do get one yeah i have and and i've made my peace with it it's never fun i mean i'm a huge animal lover i have dogs and cats and chickens and sheep and you know and it's never an easy thing i cry when my chickens die you know because it's mm-hmm. an attachment to something that's innocent and and didn't do anything to deserve what it is that's going to be his fate. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll shed a tear for him and I'll give a blessing and and it'll probably hurt, you know, just knowing that that animal has a family and one day mom or dad or something's not going to come home. But in this bigger thing, it's not about the individual animal. It's about the species as a whole. And in order to save perhaps thousands of them, We've got to take one because there's just there is just no other way of proving it. I mean, we've had the Patterson Gimlin film for forty plus years, uh, almost going on fifty years now, and it's still being debated as being real. So when people say, "Well, just bring me a photo and I'll believe it," and I'm like, "We have photos," and people always say it's a hoax. It's a man in a suit. It's this, 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 it's this. Well, then bring me DNA. Okay, well, try that as well. I I think some true. Bigfoot or wood ape samples have been tested for DNA, and it's coming back as something else because we don't have. You have to have a primer that knows what it's looking for for certain proteins, blah blah blah. And I don't think it's been developed. And so a body will prove the point. It can be described scientifically. It can be examined by other scientists. It can be have DNA samples be sent to hundreds of different labs. Uh, we'll know its vocal cord ability. Can it talk? Where is its tongue placement? What is its brain capable of? There's there's so many questions that have to be answered that a body will be the one that tells us all those things. Then that will prompt a study that will be in the field and do long-term studies on family interactions, uh, dietary needs, all those things that go with that. But the trigger is always going to be the body because this animal is, is a cryptid. You know, it's, a, it's an unknown thing, and, and the U.S. government is not going to protect something that they don't have an example of, and that's just the way it is. And I'm okay with it. And, you know, I would hope I wouldn't be the person who had to pull the trigger, but if I was in the right situation at the right time, then I would. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the specimen will serve as, will live in infamy if they're able to save a species. Mm -hmm. You're actually a government employee, correct? Yes, I am. What do you think the reaction will be if, let's say, you guys collect a specimen? What do you think the reaction will be from... A government standpoint in terms of the conservancy angle? Will everything go on lockdown? Have you worked any of this out in your mind, seeing how this would go? I, I can just tell you, I worry about a bunch of yahoos running out in the woods with <laughs> with guns, knowing that there's something out there, you know, like that's that, you know, just just to follow up on that, like, I do wonder what the reaction would be. That's Unfortunately, we have enough yahoos running into the woods with guns in Texas. Yeah, already, yeah. Exactly. Um, 
In regards to the government, I mean, we have plans in place on how this is going to be rolled out in the sense that we're going to have the government's going to obviously know about it before it's even announced to the public. So DNA, all that stuff is already going to be well and done before the public even hears that the body's been collected. And what I would expect is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that I know, at least here in California, I've been privy to conversations of we're ready to go when this happens, where they would issue an immediate call or a law that would protect any further collection of a wood ape. They would describe it and say, you know, that this is a temporarily protected animal until we conduct our tenure, and it'll take 10 years, study to get it listed onto the Endangered Species Act. And so all that will be in place before we come forward. So there won't be well, there's probably always going to be yahoos, but they're they're not going to be able to collect one um, legally. Then uh, the reaction of the forest industry outside of being able to do declare an animal endangered or potentially endangered and therefore protected, we don't do anything else very quickly. And so there isn't going to be an immediate halt to any sold timber cells or planting of timber cells. That would have to be done by Congress in order to put it into our National Environmental Protection Act planning process. And so... I wouldn't expect that for like five years. They just gave us the ability for Forest Service employees to purchase boots that we need for our job every day, uh, you know, after, what, 30-something years, and they told us about it a year ago, and we still don't have a way of even being reimbursed for money we spend to buy those boots. That's how fast we move. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's slow. Do you think that there are other well-known refugiums, as it were, obviously in the Pacific Northwest? I mean... that was always the place that it was considered to be. Do you think like you collect a specimen from Oklahoma? How would the effect of that work with California? Like, is the government going to assume like a certain area? Like, okay, well, since there's all these sightings of these things up here and now we know that it is an actual animal. Yeah. That's why the U S fish and wildlife service, which is a federal agency would uh, immediately apply that to federal lands and they have jurisdiction on state lands as well, and or individual states would be able to do that as well. And I think it's pretty logical that if you find one in Oklahoma, all those stories in Washington, Oregon, and California are probably pretty accurate. And so they would probably design something based on those factors of where previous surveys, I mean, previous sightings had happened. And so I would expect it to be national-wide, including Alaska. Uh, as well so yeah because I, w- I wonder if that would even you know if you guys do bring a specimen would that settle the debate or would people say okay well there's there's a wood ape there but what i saw in you know tennessee or what i saw in oregon that's something else or that's that looks completely different or or would people still believe in the i guess the sort of now pop culture version of bigfoot anymore well i, w- I would hope that you wouldn't have to have a, a a sample from each state i mean that would seem almost impossible to pull that off when we have other species such as um i know the red fox has been extinct from California for a significant amount of time. And we were at Yosemite, I believe, got photos of this red fox, one, recently just on the crest of the Sierras, and 
there was no doubt it was the same species. I mean, I, I think we can think that there are multiple types of species of wood apes or Bigfoots or Sasquatches if all those names represent something slightly different. I think we're, it would defeat the purpose of getting a specimen, you know. So I, I don't see anything different. I mean, I think once you get a specimen, you could put it in comparison to the Patterson-Gimlin film and see that it looked basically exactly the same. And so I think those types of things would be pretty easy to prove that it's all the same species across the United States. Yeah, because uh, I believe the the one that you guys refer to as Old Gray that Daryl and a few others have seen, y'all say that that one is almost a dead ringer for Patty, maybe sans mm-hmm. color difference, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it, there was... Um, the one I saw was a dead ringer for, for Patty, for sure. I mean, the, it was just big, outside the breast. I didn't see any breast. Of course, I was in, like, panic shock at the time. But it's, it's the exact same body built. No. Very broad, very powerful, very muscular. Is this the one that, uh, is this when you saw it run up the side of the hill? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that there was two of them, and the little one I didn't pay all that much attention to because I was trying to get as much data as I could by looking at the bigger specimen. Right, and it's a it's a patty dead ringer. Those couple of photos from the uh, one of the tribes there in Oklahoma of the one that's kind of in that little wood cluster uh-huh. that you guys were able to release on the website. I mean, that thing is massive. Mm-hmm. It almost looks like it has a gut. It does, doesn't it? I mean, it that wouldn't really surprise me all that much. The the brief individual that I saw in 2014 was my husband's six foot tall. He probably weighs like 180, somewhere around there. And this thing was twice the size of, of him. Just the briefness of seeing and be, being able to continue to stand where I saw it and them running over and measuring the location. This thing was just gigantic. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if it had a gut just because that's just extra storage of resources when you need it. So I I don't think they count their calories. I think they just, you know, when they have the opportunity to eat, they eat. And when they're not eating, that's the, the calorie supply that they're pulling on. Do you think that they, the way that the Wachita's, you know, with the hot springs that are there in Arkansas, and this area of the country having a lot of limestone, which leads to a lot of natural caves. Do you think that there's a possibility that they underground at all? You know, that's hard to say. Um, it is mostly limestone, which I've noticed. And there has always been long rumors of caves being in the area, but I've never seen any. Right. Um, it would be a logical way of getting out of the weather. and But I think it would probably be pretty darn unpleasant. Maybe not. I mean, it depends on how deep it would be. Um, if it's a what we call a cave shelter, which is a horizontal versus a vertical right. uh, cave, um, you know how many bugs are in it. I mean, bugs back there, you know, are just a <laughs> nightmare. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know, it would. De- it, I think it would depend. You know, it would definitely be cooler in the summer, but it would also maybe trap some other annoying bugs or other problems that might come with it. So it's hard to know. I have never seen a cave in this, these areas so far, but right. You know. I'm just assuming with the way that the range is, the location and like we said with the limestone and, and I don't necessarily think I mean that they like live down there and then come out. It seems like that that would be a, an explanation for shelter or, you know, and again, it could just be 
like an outcropping that's give them some sort of shelter. I just wonder about, since you said they don't seem to be in that particular area in the winter, are they migrating or are they just going a couple of valleys over? Yeah, that's, that's what I think they're doing. I think they're just going a little ways over. I don't think they're, they're traveling hundreds of miles of, uh, by any stretch of the means. I think they're just going to a different spot that has more resources available to them during the winter times. Right. Where that is, I can't tell you. Don't know. It's fascinating to think about, too, but I just wouldn't assume, since you guys are seeing so many adolescents, that they would have them up and moving too far. Yeah. Oh, no. I I think that the um, little ones that we've seen uh, had an adult somewhere nearby. We just don't know where that adult was. I don't think most species are not going to let their... Yeah. They're not going to let their babies get too far away. No, no. I think they were there and we just didn't see them. And and I think that's part of what a lot of the activity that we have going on is actually generated by the, if you know, if you want to use the term teenager phase of however big that is or, mm-hmm. or what age that is. I think that's the ones who are spending more time around us throwing the rocks, doing these things out of curiosity than an adult. I don't, I, I think those big gigantic adult ones are rarely seen. Right, right. And I, I think that the reason that uh, there may be a situation where people have, let's say one that comes closer to like a town, one that seems like it uh, causes some mischief or, you know, it's seen away from an area like X. I think, uh, it could be, you know, an adolescent male that tried to assert dominance and then got booted. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's what all primates, I mean, uh, chimpanzees and gorillas, they, there's only one room for one dominant male. And so that's pretty typical of if you want to be the boss, then you can't do it here. you you got to go over there, buddy. And it wouldn't surprise me at all that there is a group of that kind of age group that are hanging around the cabin because nobody cares what they're doing at the time. But one thing we've definitely uh, tuned in in is that there's never just one. And so if you're having something happening at that time, I can guarantee you there's another one there. They're all in multitudes of at least two, if not more. It's crazy how far uh, we've come. That's crazy. It's crazy how far we've come from them being strictly nocturnal, solitary, maybe only one Bigfoot, you know, in the whole country to now we know for a fact that there's multiple ones. They're family oriented. They climbed trees five years ago. That seemed like the most ridiculous thing of all time that a Bigfoot would be in tree. I remember the first time I saw the New York video with the chimpanzee like creature swinging around in the tree. And just the idea that somebody would think that that was a, a baby Bigfoot drove me insane. How's that even possible? And now it's uh, it makes total sense. Now it's like you guys are really bringing that to the forefront of like, hey, this is a, a possibility. And how often have has somebody been in the forest and that's been an escape route? Nobody's looked up, you know? Yeah. No, you don't look up. And that's the problem. We, we, that's always been our motto from here on out. Always look up because we don't know what's going on above your head because there's so much potential. And, and it's not the, the, you know, old daddy ones that weigh several hundred pounds. It's those little ones that are the, have the ability to still climb those trees that are doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, we know so much more than we, we knew 
even, yeah, up to five years ago. It's pretty shocking. What was it that flipped the switch in you and made you want to start spending your summers out in in Oklahoma? You studied anthropology. Was it simply looking at some of these stories and saying there's got to be something to this, or, or is there something else? I would say it was very good friends, and actually I consider Alton Higgins to be more than a friend. I consider him to be um, a mentor of mine, that he is just a class act across the way. And when I was asked to go, it was from him, and he said, Kathy, we really want you to come out and visit this place and just let us know what you think. You know, give us some anthropology viewpoint on this. And it just felt right. I I had, you know, everything together at work. You know, the house could function by itself. And it just said, you know, we can can do this. And they're on our way. Let's meander and see some archaeology, you know, through Flagstaff and visit family and we'll make a big swing of it. And so it was then, of course, we were there. We arrived on a Sunday. We uh, had the sighting on Monday. And then all the intensity of the rocks rose, all this you know, all these things that were just like, holy moly, I can't believe all this is going on kind of stuff. And then it just, from there, it was just a constant, like, addiction, I guess is the word I want to use. And and I've used that word my husband several times. I'm addicted to the area. I'm addicted to wanting one more rock throw. You know, go ahead, one more. Just give me one more rock throw. Well, if I just wait five more minutes, maybe I'm going to look the right direction and one's going to walk by. It's that It's that feeling of, I know they're here. There's not a doubt in my mind. I just want to be there when something happens. It's even hard to sleep there because I'm always afraid I'm going to sleep through something incredible or worse, wake up and you know, a bit for being my face or something. I don't know how I feel about that. It's constant. It's, it takes some, sometimes it depends on what happened the week before with who was there that the, with the group the week before. But most of the time when you first arrive, the first day or two is pretty quiet because they're, you know, you're, there's a new group and, and, you know, what are you guys doing? And then it picks up from there. And in 2014, last year, Bob and I were in there by our complete selves for the week. And it, and it was pretty hot because it, September seems to be a lot hotter in the area than um, like the middle of July, I guess. I don't know, but it was really sticky hot. And then we had a group that came in for the second week, so we went for two weeks. So we've been in there collective of six weeks um, each. And um, it was hard to go. It was really, really hard to go because we were on the last team that was in that particular year. And I was just like going, you know, you kind of want to come home, but then you're kind of like, oh, I don't really want to go. You know, can we just spend a couple more days? And so it's just, it's just the thrill knowing that I'm gathering data that's helpful, learning new things that I didn't know I would ever have the opportunity to know. All those things are the factor that made me want to go. I don't, I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't love Oklahoma under any way, shape, or form. I'm not sure why we allowed it to become a state. Um, no, We're with you. We're totally with you. Yeah, it's like, you know, I always heard you guys sucked, and it's true. Everything's trying to kill you when you're there. We saw, we had a timber rattle. No, a tim- is it a, I don't know what kind of rattle things you have there right now. I think it's a timber rattle. There's spiders. I got a spider almost in my mouth when I was walking. I mean, oh these spiders, gosh. they make these webs like in 10 seconds. 
Yeah. yeah. I've been on the porch cooking, went down, handed my husband his food, walked back up on the porch, and there's a spider where I just was, and he almost got me right in the eye. I mean, it's just, it's not a fun place to be at all, but I just can't help it. Yeah. I don't think people understand that <laughs> you're really in a jungle and it's. Yeah, the it's least, terrifying. The least of your worries is getting hit by a rock from right from a wood ape. Yeah, yeah that's nothing compared to, you know, I, I mean, and now just get ready for the water moccasins because yeah. whatever water you have, they're ready to bring you down too. That's why we try to stick to the city as <laughs> yeah. much as possible, at least uh, here in North Texas. So you said that they they originally asked you to come out to look at it from an anthropological viewpoint. So do you feel like you're what? What are you? Um, what are you learning from at least from from that direction? What, what sort of things are you are you trying to document, and how how are you looking at it differently than maybe some some of the others are? Um, I think I, I bring to it a sense of of that long history of of studying uh, Jane Goodall's um, uh, chimp work, um, of course uh, Diane Fossey. You know the methods that they used, and then the correlations that they made of what they saw. Plus, I'm I'm a, a trained archaeologist, which is somebody who's a um, an expert in um, taking raw materials and making them into tools. And so, my ability to recognize if something is tool use, tool creation, that type of environment. What what is typical human behavior? What is typical ape behavior? Can I see that? Can I witness that? Can I attest it? Okay, this what I'm seeing is not human behavior. This is not how somebody who just decided to go off the grid or something that's closely related to us behaves. That isn't matching what I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing is exactly what I would describe as chimp behavior. Maybe a little more sophisticated, but not much more. It's it's exactly what I would expect for something that might very well be our closest relative, but is clearly not Homo sapiens sapiens. So that's what I think I bring to it versus a biology, wildlife biologist viewpoint, which looks at habitat. And I can look Mm -hmm. at food resources as well, but I think it's just that different view of knowing what our ancestors were capable of and how does this how does this work with what I'm seeing. So let me ask you this. Uh, you are the author of Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot and Native Culture. You've had the ability to talk with tribal leaders and really seen the, the progression of this, uh, the spoken word history of Bigfoot through Native Culture. Now that you are so involved in in this research project has there been any correlation between maybe some old myth legend native american to what you're seeing in x oh yeah the, uh, native americans and, and i know there i always hear people go oh what do they know they they wrote about that thousands of years ago, or not wrote, because they only had um, uh, uh, spoken language. They didn't have writing, and they passed it down through oral tradition. But the things that they passed on are incredibly relevant. I mean, they talk about rock throwing. They talk about whistling. They talk about all these behaviors that is associated with um, Bigfoot behavior. And they're dead on. It is exactly what they do. What they describe is correct. Do... They do believe that, or not believe, they do have Bigfoot talking in some of these um, stories, but 
deer talk, eagle talks, everybody talks, and then that's just an element of how to tell a better story. You know, it's pretty boring if the only, you know, person telling the story is the, the human that's in, in, involved in the story. So you're always going to have animals that have some kind of human characteristics. Right. And so uh, what I find is that they're dead on. What What then becomes the question is they believe that they ate humans, and is that accurate? Is that correct? Are they still doing this? You know, do they prefer brunettes over blondes? I don't know. So hopefully, hopefully at some point in my research, I will be able to figure that out and have an answer for it. Um, But those types of behaviors, I don't have any way to verify or not verify. Before you saw all this stuff for yourself, were those the types of legends that you maybe put more credence into than perhaps some of the other Native American legends, the, you know, the legends of the, the I guess, the woolly man or the, the Sasquatch, things like that? Um, no, I, I put credence in almost every Native American mm. story. I, I don't know that um, I can tell you what each one of them means, but I've worked enough with Native people to know that there's something about the story that's in every story they tell that is absolutely correct. What it is you have to do research to figure that out. So I, I either have to know the land or know the tribe or know something about them to figure it out. But outside of coyote, Bigfoot or wood apes are the only true consistent um, animal stories or stories at all across North America, including Alaska, Canada, from California over to the East Coast, and in South America, there there are no other characters, i.e., not everybody has eagle stories, not everybody has condor stories, not everybody has rabbit stories. Everybody has a coyote story, and nearly everybody has a Bigfoot story. Hmm. So why is that? And that, and that's actually what drove me to write the book in the first place. Was is come on, people, look at these consistencies. Why are they doing this? That's because it's a real animal. So. The way that the natives describe how they have such reverence for this animal, but yet there's certainly some sort of like fear about it. Definitely, definitely. I mean, there's very few Native Americans that they have reverence for him, but they wouldn't, you know, they don't consider him a friend. Uh, there's only a few tribes like the the Yoke to, you know, have a, um, a pictograph with him on it, and they you know, have a story that he helped create humans and blah, 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 and he's a good guy kind of thing, and still has a, an enormous place in their culture today that he has to be the one that takes uh, a soul of uh, a Yokus Indian who passes away, Bigfoot still comes and takes his soul to the next place. And so there are not many of those at all. Most of them were like, uh, their traditional beliefs, when I talked to them, that they would always teach their children, that thing isn't us, that don't go. It you know it will want you to, but don't just stay away from it. They have different culture than us. Just leave it alone. And it, so they have a respect for it. I think we're well, they have a respect for all life oh, well, in the forest. Yeah. There is there is you know they firmly believe that Mother Earth um, gives for a reason, and you respect what she gives and and um, treat it with respect. You treat everything that that the earth has to give you is respect and it means you don't kill it unless you intend to eat it or you need it for food. You don't do this unless you do this, you know, because it's, they always had, I believe that things are finite, you know, that 
if you take all of something and leave nothing for later, that's going to turn around and bite you later because there's only so much of everything. Didn't I hear you say at one point that like uh, there were native bones that were in a cave and the native people did not bury people in, in caves and so the the tribe associated those bones with having been we fed a, on? A, yeah, we have a cave here in Cal- on my national forest. It's called Pinnacle Point Cave, and it had roughly 100 individuals that were cremated and uh, somewhere around 10,000 artifacts um, associated with it. They were excavated back in, like, I don't even know, like 1961, 62, something like that, that are still in um, our collections. We, by law, um, the goal is to return Native American human remains to the tribes which they're associated with in order to comply with the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, commonly known as NAGPRA. And when I went to consult with our local tribes about trying to get them these bones back, they were like, oh, hell no. And I was like, what? And they go, where did you guys find it? And I said, well, it was found in the cave. Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, nope, that, that definitely 100% isn't our people. We would never bury our loved ones in a cave where Bigfoot lives. Those are victims of a Bigfoot that he ate them and threw them down the cave shaft. So they, they brought they're, that up. They're not ours. Yeah, that was what they said. Huh. And I was like going, oh, great, now I get to mix <laughs> My passion of Bigfoot was this. My boss is going to have a great day with me. And the, the, everybody said it really well. There wasn't anybody. Cause I had to file this paperwork with the National Park Service to say, hey, I consulted with the tribe, and the tribe said, hell no. And, and National Park Service went, okay, that's their belief. We're great with it. And I'm like, wow, I just got to talk about Bigfoot on government time. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's awesome. Well, Kathy, um, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I, I could keep this going for a long time, but out of respect for you and uh, Matt, I'm going to shut it down. Just really excited for you. And thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Future, right. have fun in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do. Anyway. <laughs> thank you, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. Hey, I love that hair, long and black. Hanging down in the middle of your back Don't you cut it off, whatever you do Wait, I ain't in, I can't get the time there Hey, I love that hair, long and black Hanging down in the middle of your back Don't you Hey, I love that hair, long and black Hanging down in the middle of your back Don't you cut it off, whatever you do Cause I need it to run my fingers through Cause you're my baby, uh-huh You're my sugar yeah, don't mean maybe, little woolly booger. Hey, I got a guitar, got six strings, and a guitar pick that'll make them ring. Every string's got a note or two that I'm gonna use to serenade you, cause you're my baby. Uh-huh, you're my sugar. Oh, you drive me crazy, little woolly booger. Well, I got a dollar that I saved, I saved it up for a rainy day. Everybody's calling for bills that's due, but if they don't catch me, I'll spend it on you, cause you're my baby. Uh-huh, you're my sugar. Yeah, don't mean maybe, little woolly booger. 
Well, I had me a gal, she said she was mine, but she run around on me all the time. Now she's gone, I'm glad we're through, cause I'm plumb goggle-eyed over you, cause you're my baby. Uh-huh, you're my sugar. What? Drive me crazy, don't mean maybe. Drive me crazy, little woolly booger.